I just think about had this group of had that group of people been black or brown, um, especially black, it would not have happened this way. There would we we wouldn't have made it to the steps to be able to then come in the doors. Um, there would not have been uh, any tear gas, you know, being deployed inside the Capitol. There, you know, there would not have been, um, you know, any of us with our feet up on, you know, a, a member's desk. You know, that would not have happened. We wouldn't have made it that far. You know, we would have, we would have been shocked had we tried to do all of that. Let's just be real. We would have been shocked. You know, the, the tear gas would have been deployed outside, noise munitions, you know, rubber bullets. I am absolutely stunned. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, Episode 6, The Impunity of White Mobs. That was Representative Corey Bush speaking to her experience in the insurrection of January 6th. Today, I'd like to examine the racial history and context of the insurrection of January 6th, when a mob that was about 85% white came to storm the Capitol in the District of Columbia, a city with 1.6 million black residents, the third largest black population of any city in the United States. I'll examine how law enforcement has failed to deliver equal justice in America, and how it has often been either blind to white mob violence, or has sometimes actively taken part in it. Before I dive into that, a couple of quick updates. Congressional hearings have been since the events of January 6th, and two important House committee meet hearings were held on Tuesday, June 15th, in the Committee on House Administration and the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. In the latter committee, members heard testimony from General Charles Flynn, Lieutenant General Walter Piat, and FBI Director Christopher Wray. I won't recapitulate all the testimony now, uh, it's rather long, but there are some questions that were addressed to the witnesses that they weren't able to answer successfully at the time, but that we actually do have answers to. So uh, we'll start with Representative Glenn Grothman of Wisconsin. Were arrested, walked in the Capitol, and perhaps had no reason to know they were breaking the law, and were, as one Capitol policeman described to me, just going around. Were people like that arrested, and are they still in jail? Can't speak to any specific case, so I'm really not sure that I can answer the question. And so that was FBI Director Ray saying, quite correctly, that he can't speak to any specific case. Um, but again, why, why is that? Well, he's the FBI director, so he's in overall charge of the FBI. He's looking into uh, the investigations. Uh, he's an administrator. What he does not do is uh, determine the uh, matters of custody, the conditions of confinement, of confinement. That is determined by the court system, not the FBI. And uh, presumably, Representative Rothman is aware of that, uh, one might hope. After reviewing the information, though, uh, it seems that only about 50 of the defendants out of over 500 that um, have been detained so far are in uh, pretrial custody. The rest of them are free, right? 
So only about 10% of all the defendants are actually being detained, and um, the vast majority of them are out. They're free, mainly on personal recognizance. I didn't review all of them, um, but most of the defendants that are probably all of them, right? <laughs> but most of the ones that, you know, I called misguided tourists. Again, they're not tourists. They, you know, they knew what they were doing. They knew where they were and they knew it was illegal. Nonetheless, um, however, you know, they want to frame this. Uh, they appear to have been released, right? In fact, uh, it goes far beyond that. Um, a large number of defendants who have been released pre-trial are ones who are facing felony charges, including attacking police with a dangerous weapon. So they've actually released people who are accused of violent offenses, including hitting officers with objects. Um, and it seems like, you know, judges have been very generous to defendants. So when 90% of the defendants have been released um, and looking at the charges about, you know, divides about evenly, uh, about half of the defendants only face misdemeanor charges uh, and, you know, don't appear to have been, there are no allegations of violence uh, concerning their cases. Um, they've all been released. So um, FBI Director Ray didn't have appeared to want to answer that question or appear to be able to answer that question. But no, those people don't exist. The people who, you know, quote, wandered into the Capitol, and again, they saw the violence, right? Even uh, on the side of the Capitol, the east side where the barricades were moved, there actually was, there was fighting uh, with police uh, at the outset, but they were simply very badly outnumbered, and that's when they, they moved the barricades. All right. The next question I'd like to address uh, came from uh, Representative Jody Heiss of Georgia, and once again was directed at uh, FBI Director Ray, and it's a question regarding whether pretrial defendants in cases resulting from the January 6th insurrection were being held in solitary confinement unnecessarily. But I'm troubled that reportedly dozens of individuals from the January 6th uh, riots have been held without bond in solitary confinement for up to 23 hours a day. Uh, even Senator Elizabeth Warren has said that solitary confinement is a poor form of punishment that is cruel and psychologically damaging. She went on and said that in relation to those involved in January 6th, that we're talking about people who haven't been convicted of anything yet. Even the ACLU expressed similar concerns saying that solitary confinement is torture. Director Ray you have mentioned a couple of times now some 500-plus prosecutions from January 6th. Uh, your work in that regard we all appreciate. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, how many of those are in solitary confinement? Congressman, I, I thank you for your appreciation for our work. I don't know the number that would be uh, held under those conditions. That's a, a decision made by the court. Uh, now, so again, similar kind of answer. Um, again, it's not Director Ray's job to, you know, determine the conditions of confinement, and presumably Representative Heiss knows that. But he's very bothered by the fact that some members uh, in the crowd, some members of the, the insurrection, um, 
were, you know, are, are apparently still being held uh, in solitary confinement. Now, um, if he really wanted to address this issue, uh, he really should take it up with the courts rather than Director Ray, who has no part in these decisions. So, with regard to an answer, um, I looked at, looked at uh, the individual cases, and it appears that about 39 of the 50 or so defendants who are subject to pretrial detention are being held at the D.C. jail, which is officially known as the D.C. Central Detention Facility. And of those, all of them have been placed in restrictive housing for their own safety. Now, we don't know why. We don't really know why. There is no information uh on you know that's been put forward by anyone's press office um but basically that decision is up to the warden so that's the kind of custodial decision that you know if the warden thinks that there's a reason why these steps need to be taken then he has the authority to do that uh it could be there are some incidents when these defendants were first coming came into the facility that led staff to move them into restrictive housing for their own safety. Uh, we do know that these defendants haven't been particularly well-adjusted on the whole uh, to prison life with their attorneys requesting things such as uh, vegan food in the case of Jacob Chansley, uh, who wound up moving to another facility where that was possible, uh, or complaints about inadequate medical care, or uh, you know some of them complaining that some of the officers were uh, a little rough with them. Um, but I don't know what they expect. I mean, it's a facility that has a reputation as a, a fairly rough place. Um, now these defendants are, are actually from DC. So I'd suppose that the, the message is that if you, uh, you don't want to go to DC jail, don't travel to DC and commit crimes, allegedly. So the DC jail itself is about two miles from Congress and it was built in 1976. So, not the oldest facility in, uh, in the country, but uh, an older one. And inmates have continuously been filing complaints regarding the D.C. jail for decades. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, was, you know, there have been court orders, uh, there have been a number of questions, there have been judgments uh, to limit the number of inmates uh, who are held there. But for some reason, uh, in the hearings... Uh, on uh, June 15th, Representative Heiss has five minutes to speak, and he's suddenly concerned about the con conditions at the D.C. jail. Now, he sits on the, the House Oversight and Reform Committee. He, you know, this is a facility two miles from Congress. He's had years to address it, but um, he's acting like he has no idea about the kind of conditions that are actually there at the D.C. jail, even though it's only two miles from the Capitol itself. Uh, it's almost as if the problem is that Trump supporters came from all over the country, allegedly did crimes, and they're now being up. They're now upset that they're being treated the way uh, predominantly black in inmates in D.C. have been treated for decades, and suddenly is a problem. Uh, Representative Heiss has framed the conditions of confinement as somehow punitive, but I don't know if he'd prefer the alternative. Right. So if the warden fears that if they were subject to violence, if they were in general population, um, you know, if these inmates had been assaulted, I think Representative Heiss would be asking why these inmates weren't in protective custody. These uh, pretrial inmates, you know, 
he would be demanding it. So um, it seems like Heist would probably prefer that they not be charged at all. Uh, on January 6th, before the insurrection, he posted a tweet claiming that, quote, this is the day we fight, all caps, to defend our republic and preserve the integrity of our elections. I am leading the objection to Georgia's electors in the joint session of Congress with at Senator Leffler. What is done today will be remembered. This is our 1776 moment. So I don't know if he knew that, you know, something was going to happen at the Capitol other than what was happening in Congress. But the language he used at 1019 a.m. on January 6th prefigures the language that Trump would later use in his speech at the Ellipse. And Heiss also posted a picture to his Instagram claiming, once again, this is our 1776 moment. Um, both the Instagram photo and his tweet have still been deleted. They've been uh, deleted. Apparently, uh, he, he no longer agrees with the sentiment that that was their 1776 moment. But it's striking that the same members who justified opposition to establishing a congressional commission to launch an official inquiry into January 6th uh, at the time claimed that committee hearings would suffice, and yet they're now doing everything they can to obstruct those hearings. They're more concerned about, you know, the conditions of confinement of these inmates than they are about actually finding out what happened uh, and who's responsible uh, for this storming of the Capitol. Now, at the very end of his time, Representative Heiss uses his time to ask about Hunter Biden's laptop and the investigation and the origins of the FBI investigation into Trump's connections with Russian state actors. Part of the problem is that it's just, you know, just so happens that the House Oversight and Reform Committee has not only Jody Heiss, but also Representative Jim Jordan, Andrew Clyde, Clay Higgins, and Paul Gosar. Um, these are all members who voted against impeachment and in favor of decertifying electoral votes. And they've expressed views openly sympathetic to the aims of insurrectionists minimizing the violence and danger posed to the peaceful transfer of power. It was Representative Clyde, you'll recall, who claimed that the insurrectionists in the Capitol had, had behaved as tourists, even though he himself is on camera barricading the House chamber against their assault. Uh, the comment from Representative Heiss about Hunter Biden's laptop and the, the Durham report into how the investigation into the Trump's Russia connections began uh, garnered some media coverage. But uh, what I thought was remarkable was uh, another moment in the hearing. Uh, but members have to vote. They need to go to vote. Which is exactly why we should adjourn. I object to that not happening, and I, I'd like it the on the record. gentleman's request is denied. The gentleman from California, Mr. Kahana, uh, is recognized for five minutes. minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair, you for to adjourn? your leadership. Uh, thank you, Director Ray, uh, for your service. Director Ray, you have told uh, House committees that you need to look hard at what happened. You are committed to doing better. Uh, you told 
Chairwoman Maloney, that uh, you have to bat a thousand percent, and even one mistake is unacceptable, and you will make sure this never Madam Chair, I, I move to adjourn. Yeah. Madam Chair, if I could uh, pause, I not be a motion. Madam Chair. It doesn't have the floor. The gentleman is not recognized. It is Mr. Connie. You know, Madam Chair, we had an insurrection. We don't need disruptions here. Can we allow the democratic process to continue, please? Some of our members would like to hear the complete testimony. Well, I, I think that we should follow the rules. That the rules state that if there is a motion to adjourn, that we have to have a motion. Madam Chair, we have a we have a motion on the floor. Motion on the regular floor. order. Regular order. So that was Elmer Holmes Norton presiding. That was uh, Representative Rocana of uh, California trying to ask questions of Director Ray. And uh, the members of the minority decide that they're going to interrupt him. Uh, you know, they got, they're getting their time, but they've decided they want to use Representative Kana's time uh, for a frivolous motion to adjourn even though they are not recognized. Every member understands regular order, and, you know, they give up quickly. Uh, because, I mean, they're just, they're not just wrong. Um, you know, this is just a, an open and pointless and oppositional defiance of the rules of how the committee is uh, supposed to operate. And this incident really reminded me of uh, the 1950s and 60s and 70s uh, when, you know, you have the peak of the civil rights movement and there would be these white Southern members basically having tantrums in committees and on the floor of both chambers on a regular basis. Three of these members uh, sitting in this committee, Heiss, Clyde, and Higgins, represent districts that formerly were occupied by members who supported the 1956 Southern Manifesto, uh, Paul Brown, Philip Landrum, and Edwin Willis. And again, that was the uh, anti-civil rights um, manifesto that was put forward by segregationist members of Congress back in the 50s. So same districts. The only difference is that those kind of members back then were Democrats, and now they're Republicans. So I'd urge you to watch the committee hearings on January 6th, both the hearings in the House Oversight and Reform Committee and the Committee on House Administration. It's just striking that the same members who claimed that committee hearings obviated the need for a bipartisan commission are now actively obstructing those very committee hearings. This is less true in the Committee on House Administration than in the Oversight and Reform Committee, but there's a certain amount of partisan grandstanding in both, particularly by the minority. In the Committee on House Administration's hearing this week, uh, the committee heard testimony from Capitol Police Inspector General Bolton, who they'd heard from before, and um, he came out with a new data point about his investigation into the Capitol Police that uh, we hadn't heard yet. Um, and it's directly related to the theme of this week's episode. Apparently, Capitol Police rely on training with third-party private firms to conduct weapons training. 
and the Inspector General found new information regarding one of these firms, an outfit called Northern Red, that's based here in my home state of North Carolina, close to the border with Virginia, just south of Danville. Bolton said that he was recommending that no federal agency continue to contract with this firm, Northern Red, due to images on its website. In its promotional materials, the instructors appear to be wearing a version of a Devil's Guard patch, a patch that had been popularized among some people in the military and law enforcement based on its association with a series of fictional books uh, that first saw a publication in the 1970s about a Waffen-SS soldier who served in Southeast Asia during the long conflict there uh, in the, the French Foreign Legion. And I think uh, perhaps later as a mercenary. Um, so perhaps more tellingly, um, the logo of Northern Red is a combination of two Norse runes, uh, Othala and Tyr. The Othala, or Odal rune, was used as the divisional emblem of the 7th SS Freiwilligen Gebirgsdivision Prince Eugen, and also the Rasse und Seidlungshauptamt der SS, the racial purity arm of the SS, whose responsibility was maintaining Nazi standards of racial purity in the SS. So that's to say that this particular rune is uh, was used by one of the most racist parts of the SS, the most racist organization in human history. The Tiwazer Tirun was used by the official training schools of the SA, Sturmabteilung. So you had the Udal rune that was used by the Nazis to symbolize a race or family, and the Tirun that was supposed to symbolize leadership and battle. And so when you combine these two runes into one, uh, it's pretty clear that the combination is no accident in the context of a training school, right? So they're training people, uh, you know, to take leadership in battle in a race war would be my interpretation. Uh, probably, you know, open to interpretation, but it's common practice among neo-fascist groups worldwide to use symbols that are cryptic to outsiders, but have coded meaning to insiders. So this way, fascists can identify one another uh, while also plausibly denying the fascist associations of the words and images that they use. A good example of this is the neo-Nazi tattoo 88, the significance of which, of course, uh, only reveals itself when you consider that this is a code and that H is the eighth letter of the alphabet, and so uh, 88 stands for Heil Hitler. So the Capitol Police issued a press release regarding this outfit, Northern Red. Quote, The training facility provides a high-level training course, which is only for active-duty military and law enforcement. In the past, the United States Capitol Police Department and Emergency Response Team, CERT, and other federal law enforcement agencies have trained there. The USCP facility is not built for high-powered weapons. The last time the department used the training facility was in 2019. CERT has not trained there and does not intend to in the future. 
which is only compounded by these new concerns from the Office of the Inspector General, OIG. Acting Chief Pittman believes it is a time for a culture change in the law enforcement profession. Diversity and inclusion have been a passion of hers throughout her entire career. Acting Chief Pittman and all of the USCP leadership team takes extremist ideology seriously and are working on a plan to ensure that this kind of cancer does not find its way into this department. It has no place here. So, Inspector General Bolton determined that the Capitol Police are going to work with other law enforcement agencies to make use of existing federal training facilities for firearms, rather than relying on these private contractors, which in any event is probably best practice uh, to begin with, right? We already have facilities that are being paid for taxpayer expense. Why would, should we pay a premium for these uh, you know, private outfits, especially when they may have some dubious connections? So that actually brings us to this week's topic, because an important part of the events of January 6th is that white mob violence in America has been treated as something that's invisible to law enforcement. Here you have this group that's using these coded signals, uh, these coded images, openly to contract with law enforcement that are supposed to provide equal justice, and yet no one notices until the Office of Inspector General actually takes a look at it. Um, The official counts over and over and over again, no one in law enforcement ever appears to be aware that uh, there's a mob forming until they arrive on the steps of the county courthouse or jail or in the neighborhoods of the victims that they seek to target. Thanks in part to the HBO series Watchmen and Lovecraft Country, there has been a resurgence of popular interest in the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, but there are also hundreds of other such events in the United States history that document the impunity with which white mobs have been permitted to operate across the country, across the centuries, most commonly against black Americans, but also against other racial, ethnic, uh, and political and uh, religious minorities. So I'm not going to do a a complete historical survey here, but I'm going to focus on the common elements of how white mobs have perpetrated political violence in America and then see how this basic model that I'm going to describe here applies to the capital insurrection. Now, there's an important difference between the target of the Capitol insurrection and the typical targets of white mob violence in American history. Historically, the violence of white mobs in America has been directed at members of racial, ethnic, or religious minorities, and sometimes the LGBTQIA plus community. In the Capitol insurrection, the target of the mob was the state itself, the legislative branch, the peaceful transfer of power from one administration and the next. So, effectively, the type of regime we have. They were attacking the very type of regime we have, one in which elected officials are selected and uh, old administrations leave power, new administrations come into power. Um, That goes to the core of what it means to be a democratic republic uh, or a democracy or a liberal democracy, uh, a modern state that has meaningful elections. So it doesn't mean there weren't overtly racist elements in the mob, right? Uh, in the symbols, the, the images, the words they deployed in the crowd, the capital insurrection, they were all there. 
One officer testified that he was called the N-word uh, something like 15 times that day, and it's been documented that the mob, uh, you know, uh, there was the uh, Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt worn by uh, Robert Keith Packer, who's currently, by the way, uh, out on personal recognizance. Um, you know, there are other symbols, of course, obviously the Confederate flag, uh, et cetera, and, and so forth. Um, due to the kind of time constraints, I'm just going to assume for a moment that we can, agree, we can agree there's a history of white mobs engaging in political violence in the United States. And I referred to a number of cases uh, to look for the, these common features and the commonalities of what these things particularly share that with a focus toward what is it? about white mobs that gives them impunity how is it that this kind of mob violence is treated so differently from uh other kinds of even peaceful demonstrations because historically you know there have been peaceful demonstrations where police have been certainly well equipped they've had buses they've been ready to make mass arrests and yet here you had a crowd of tens of thousands of people uh you know many hundreds of whom took uh, part in the, the violence and the storming of the Capitol, and yet uh, police were entirely unready. Um, so I, I reviewed a few different cases uh, to sort of, you know, really draw, you know, sort of these, the common points. Um, I won't cite all of them uh, when, I, when I talk about them, but uh, examples I looked at were the Snow Riot in Washington, D.C. in 1835, the Cincinnati Race Riots of 1836, the Philadelphia Nativist Riots of 1844, the Astor Place Riot of 1849 in New York City, the Know Nothing Riot in New Orleans in 1858, the Detroit Race Riot of 1863, the New Orleans Massacre of 1866, the Kirk Holden War of 1870 in North Carolina, the Meridian Race Riot in 1871, the Battle of Liberty Place in New Orleans in 1874, the Campaign of 1876 in South Carolina, the Thibodeau Massacre of 1888, sorry, 1887, the Wilmington Coup of 1898, the Atlanta Massacre of 1906, the Slocum Massacre of 1910, and the St. Louis Riots of 1917, the Red Summer of 1919, and of course, the aforementioned Tulsa Massacre of 1921. So any one of these events could consume an entire podcast of their own, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, instead, I'm just using these examples outline the salient features common to political violence by white mobs in the United States of America with particular issues to this kind of political violence as a persistent problem with regard to the impunity with which white mobs have historically down to the present day in the example of the capital insurrection been to conduct themselves. So uh, after reviewing these I, I found five themes. First the invisibility of the white mob, uh, in that help never comes, right? Many times, you know, you can see a mob coming. It, it's not, you know, necessarily the most spontaneous thing. In this case, it was planned out. Um, and yet, um, persistently, help never arrives uh, for the targets of, of, of the mob. Two, the uh, complexity, sorry, the complicity of or even participation of law enforcement and the military. So the law enforcement and the military either uh, are complicit uh, or participate in many instances historically 
uh, and they certainly were there in the capital insurrection. Um, three, the role of paramilitary organizations. Four, plausible deniability and lack of consequences for participants. And finally, five, scapegoating and the shifting of blame. So white mobs are typically able to scapegoat, oftentimes blaming the victim for what happens and to shift the blame from themselves. All right, first, let's start with the invisibility of white mobs and how help seemingly never arrives for the victims. Uh, the cases I'll be examining are just a selection of some of the most significant examples of white mob violence in the United States, but many of these features, uh, they share features in common with other less well-known examples. So it's a matter of case selection in social science, right? So I tended to focus on large, mass events um, where there's huge areas of civil disturbances rather than, um, let's say, lynchings, which can also be mass events. Um, but typically, I, I, I tended to focus on events that had um, a, a larger number of participants and oftentimes a larger number of casualties. Um, one feature that recurs time and time again it's the failure of authorities to anticipate or to proactively thwart the violence of right mob, white mobs. Even in those instances where there might be good reason to anticipate violence by a white mob, it seems as though every single time it's just unexpected. It's completely unforeseeable. Uh, even though it's happened hundreds of times in our history, and even when the actors behind the violence are known to authorities ahead of time. This is true even in cases where duly constituted authorities are not actively collaborating with the white mob. Uh, this is a powerful kind of impunity. Somehow, white mobs are deemed implausible, as though they're somehow incapable of committing deadly violence, even in cases where they've fully made their intentions known. So one example of this is the Wilmington coup of 1898 in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, my home state. So, Wilmington was, at the time, ruled by a coalition of black Republicans and white populists. Uh, and this political alliance was called fusionists by their opponents in the Democratic Party. So, over a period of a little less than a year, prominent Democrats and the economic elite of Wilmington began to conspire on a wide variety of fronts. They waged a propaganda campaign but also began to organize paramilitaries, which I'll discuss a, a little bit later. In the run-up to the election on November 8, 1898, coup plotters held a rally of supporters in Goldsboro, uh, for which they chose the unimaginative but rather transparent name, quote, White Supremacy Rally. So, pretty, pretty transparent, right? They had a White Supremacy Rally uh, for, you know, in advance of their election campaign. These same men who took part in the rally would then arm themselves and uh, attempt to prevent blacks, Republicans, and populists from voting in the upcoming election in Wilmington. And they did that. Uh, so needless to say, Democrats won that election rather handily, but local leaders weren't actually on the ballot. So this was an election for uh, state legislature, other offices, but... Um, the people in control, uh, oftentimes we have staggered election systems um, in the U.S., and so you know, the, the actual, the mayor, city council, not on the ballot at that time, 
and uh, the they wanted to remove them. The same people who were behind rigging the election want, you know, wanted to remove the people who were in power. So um, they actually placed an ad requesting that a uh, in the newspaper requesting that a full attendance is to be desired as business in the furtherance of white supremacy is to be transacted. And uh, they place it, again, on, on, you know, on the day of the election. Now, this recalls the, the wild protest websites that went up in November of 2020. This call went out openly, right? That we're all going to meet 11 a.m. Central Court Cross, you know, bring your guns, basically, without saying bring your guns. Um, if you're not familiar with the story of the Wilmington coup of 1898, it gets worse in every detail as it goes on, and the after effects reverberate down to the present day. Mobs of armed white Democrats murdered men, women, and children openly in the streets, forcing many to flee into the swamps for refuge. An untold number in the hundreds were massacred. The fusionist local government was forced to resign at gunpoint, and a new local government was appointed on the basis of a platform they called, quote, the White Declaration of Independence. In response to these events, an anonymous black woman wrote a letter to President McKinley on November 13th, uh, in which he describes her experiences in Wilmington. Quote, Is this the land of the free and the home of the brave? How can the Negro sing, My country tis of thee? For humanity's sake, help us. For Christ's sake, do. We, the Negro, can do nothing but pray. There seems to be no help for us. No paper will tell the truth about the Negro. The men of the first North Carolina were home on a furlough, and they took a high hand in the nefarious work also. The companies from every little town came in to, cure the, to kill the Negro. There was not any rioting, simply the strong slaying the weak. They speak of special police. Every white man and boy from 12 up had a gun or pistol, and the Negro had nothing but his soul that he could say that it was his own. Oh, to see how we are slaughtered. When our husbands go to work, we do not look for their return. The man who promises the Negro protection now as mayor is the one who, in his speech at the Opera House, said the Cape Fear should be strewn with carcasses. End quote. So McKinley, for his part, you know, and th again, this inspiring part of the historical record, you know, absolutely, you know, stunning details. She did, he did absolutely nothing in response to this or any of the other pleas from the victims of the massacre and coup in Wilmington in 1898. Uh, even though these were American citizens and, for the most part, Republican voters, uh, he claimed there could be no aid because the governor of North Carolina hadn't requested aid. And, of course, there was no financial compensation for any loss and no trials for the many uh, murderers. The whole plot was carried out more or less in the open using public announcements and newspapers. And the men behind the coup publicly called for the event. They held rallies. They posted these notices. And the whole plot took about a year to bring to fruition and was part of a broader movement statewide 
to disenfranchise black voters and usher in an era of total white supremacist rule. So despite the constitutional guarantee of a Republican form of government in every state, we had a coup in my home state, and it went far beyond Wilmington. The same political movement that forged the coup also eliminated black suffrage statewide in 1899. Um, Historians, we don't don't actually ever see that this phrase, intelligence failure, applied to the Wilmington coup, but it certainly featured in it. The entire security apparatus just never seems to anticipate white violence, and when it does face it, it's met with deference, denials, and revisionism after the fact as when uh, Representative Clyde of Georgia uh, said that the insurrectionists were tourists, right? They change it. They say, well, that, that wasn't such a big deal. And they're, you know, um, again, the, the Wilmington coup of 1898, the only time we've had a coup in American history, and it's never been redressed, and there have never been any reparations, uh, simply, you know, and for many years it wasn't taught. It wasn't taught in uh, state history textbooks in the state of North Carolina. And so I, I you know, I, I hate to, to make a joke about it, but it's like the Spanish Inquisition, right? No one ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. And here, it seems like, you know, throughout American history, you know, these white mobs come, and every single time, it's like a massive surprise. No one ever has reinforcements, there's never monetary, there's never uh, recompense. Um, it's just as it just happens, and then there's there's no redress, there's no help, and there's there's you know it's it's treated like a natural disaster, right? When there are actually always identifiable people uh, who could be held to account. And we'll talk in a moment uh, about the fact that that oftentimes never happens. All right. So second thing, the complicity or participation of law enforcement and the military. So sometimes it's not just incompetence. It's, there's a lack of intelligence. Um, it's not, you know, a willful blindness that leads to the impunity of white mobs. Um, rather, actually, that the law enforcement and military are um, actively participating, right? So, again, the example uh, of the Wilmington case, you had, um, you know, the uh, men who were on furlough, right, uh, who were participating. And, um, you know, you had... Uh, the state militia, uh, as we'll see in a moment, actually also uh, taking part. And these basic stories recur repeatedly in the history of lynchings in the United States. The response of the sheriff when a mob shows up at the jail looking to lynch someone has oftentimes been to hand over the person they were looking to lynch. In the Wilmington coup, the most capable military unit deployed was the Wilmington Light Infantry. They were sent in ostensibly to disperse the unrest that they actually only wound up shooting several black men and serving as an honor guard for one of the coup leaders, uh, the man who uh, winds up, you know, appointing himself mayor, in effect. So, uh, you know, again, that's, that's not let it happen on purpose. That's actively taking part. During the Red Summer of 1919, it was white servicemen, recently returned from World War I, were often the main participants in white mob violence, often perpetrated against black servicemen, also recently returned from World War I. On July 20th, 1919, for example, open combat broke out in Washington, D.C., 
between a white mob and the black community uh, determined to defend themselves. The D.C. Metropolitan Police Department did nothing to defend the black community from the violence of the white mob, mainly comprised of servicemen. In the Thibodeau Massacre of 1887, the uh, Atacapas Rangers, a Louisiana militia, joined with the sheriff to put down a strike by black sugarcane workers who were seeking to unionize through the Ninth of Labor. Law enforcement worked hand-in-hand with the state militia to put an end to the organized labor in the South, uh, in Louisiana, and, and more broadly, killing an unknown number of black victims in the process, something in the hundreds. So, again, in many times, we don't have the data. We don't know exactly how many uh, people were killed in Wilmington. We don't know exactly how many were killed in the Thibodeau Massacre. In the so-called race riots in Atlanta in 1906, Fulton County Police sided with a violent white mob, killing dozens of black Atlanteans. Survivors also claimed that the Georgia National Guard took part in the violence against the black community at that point in time. So there are examples where the official response of the forces of law and order uh, you know, is to actively take part. Um, sometimes, though, sometimes they do just sort of stand by and allow the white mob to do what they want to. Uh, one such example is the unrest in East St. Louis, Illinois, in 1917, which also began as a labor dispute and ultimately left as many as 250 black citizens dead and some 6,000 homeless. Uh, rather unusually in this instance, there is actual documentation of this laissez-faire attitude of law enforcement and the National Guard to the victims uh, of the plight of the victims of the white mob. This from a St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I believe, quote, All the impartial witnesses agree that the police were either indifferent or encouraged the barbarities, and that the major part of the National Guard was indifferent or inactive. No organized effort was made to protect the Negroes or disperse the murdering groups. The lack of frenzy and of a large infuriated mob made the task easy. Ten determined officers could have prevented most of the outrages. One hundred men acting with authority and vigor might have prevented any outrage. So time and time again in the history of white mob violence in America, what we've seen from military and law enforcement is actual participation, and at other times, encouragement, or at best, indifference. This isn't a universal rule. Uh, There have been instances where police and National Guard have protected law and order, but that seems very much to depend on the target of the violence. Police seem much more vigorous against, say, union activity than against uh, racist mobs. And again, saw something similar with Antifa and BLM, right? Particularly BLM protests, massive reaction on the part of of law enforcement. Uh, Trumpist insurrection, massive underreaction. Third thing, the role of paramilitary organizations. So, um, as I believe I said in episode one, as a rule, if you have paramilitary organizations actively engaged in political violence in your country, it's a very bad portent for the political stability of your country. One of the common features, historically, of white mob violence in the United States is that it's not all impromptu, but rather oftentimes features a central role for white paramilitary organizations who then play a pivotal role in leadership, planning, and execution 
of white mob violence. Sometimes, as with the Proud Boys, it's hard to draw the line between a paramilitary group and a street gang. And that was certainly true in our first example, the East Coast of the United States in the 1850s, you had street gangs that played a regular role in urban politics. In reaction to increased Irish migration, immigration rather, uh, the American Republican Party split from the Whig Party in 1844 and called itself the Know Nothing Party. Now, there are a host of similarities between the Know Nothings of the 1840s and the 1850s and the Trumpist wing of the Republican uh, Party today. I'm not really going to go too much into that, but, you know, they're fond of immigration restrictions, that very chauvinistic attitude, the favored native-born white Americans, and they love to accuse their political opponents of election fraud, while oftentimes you know, perpetrating it themselves. So nowhere was this merger of violent street gangs and nativist politics more complete than in Baltimore, Maryland, where gangs such as the Pug Uglies, the Wampanoags, and the Rip Raps took part in electoral intimidation and fought with rival Democratic gangs, such as the New Market Fire Company, a group that was simultaneously a gang and a fire uh, provider of firefighting services with a side order of extortion. These gangs even had cannons, which they fired at one another and at police. The worst fighting in Baltimore occurred around the election of 1856, and yet only two men faced charges at the end of the hostilities. The Know Nothings also took part in widespread ethnic violence around the country in a period from 1844 to 1858, with other notable episodes of disorder occurring in Philadelphia, St. Louis, New York, D.C., Louisville, and New Orleans. Now, um, most prominent examples of civil unrest associated with paramilitary organizations occurs in the run-up to Civil War, Reconstruction, and Jim Crow. So a period of about 70 years, until about 1914. In the short list of example cases I cited earlier, almost all contained elements of white paramilitary involvement. The Red Shirts in the Wilmington Coup, Rifle Clubs in the South Carolina Campaign of 1876, the Klan in too many cases to enumerate. Um, and they're oftentimes overlooked allies in a group called the White League, a white supremacist paramilitary organization that operated uh, across most of the South perhaps notably in the Battle of Liberty Place in 1874. Many of these members actively recruited people uh, from law enforcement and especially military vet veterans. So, again, one of the things that's oftentimes accompanied white mob violence is the rise of paramilitary organizations who are somehow permitted to organize and operate uh, with very little interest, seemingly on the part of law enforcement establishment. Fourth thing, plausible deniability and the lack of consequences for participants. So time and time again, when white mobs have engaged in political violence in America, there have been very few legal consequences. Even, and one might, might be tempted to say, particularly for the leaders. The official response often seems to be, that's just a thing that happened. There are good people on both sides. Let's move on. Uh, even in the Tulsa massacre, no prosecutions occurred. Of white people, that is. Uh, the National Guard arrested 6,000 black people, even though 
they were the ones who were being slaughtered. And the same pattern recurs. No arrests at the coup in Wilmington, for example. It's almost easier to list the states, uh, the cases, where there were charges. For example, in the campaign of 1876 in South Carolina, Red Shirts, again, a white supremacist paramilitary, attacked a black National Guard unit, ultimately killing six of them, including four of them who they had taken as prisoner and tortured to death, which is pretty horrific, right? So you've got paramilitaries taking black National Guardsmen prisoner, torturing them to death. And what happens? There were 94 white men who were indicted for murder, but no trials were ever actually held. So that's, you know, pretty stunning. Um, In the Battle of Liberty Place in 1874, former Confederate General James Longstreet, who after the Civil War earnestly dedicated himself to Reconstruction, uh, which itself, by the way, is a fascinating story and one of the reasons why many white supremacist Southerners never mentioned General Longstreet. Uh, he led bla- a force of black policemen of the New Orleans Metropolitan Police against a white league militia. Again, no arrests, even though 11 officers and officials were killed by insurrectionists. Uh, no a- arrests were placed. In the 1906 Atlanta race riot, no charges were ever filed. A grand jury convened to investigate, and it blamed a local newspaper for cooking up stories of black men raping white women. But no one saw fit to charge anyone for the multiple shootings and lynchings that took place. The only arrests that took place were of members of the black community uh, who met at Clark University to discuss organizing and self-defense. And so police move in swiftly to arrest 250 black citizens for the crime of merely assembling to discuss how to defend themselves from white mob violence. But somehow the actual perpetrators of that mob violence, no arrests. I've largely confined this discussion to these mass civil disturbances, but I'd like now to address the 1946 Moore's Ford lynchings in Georgia, because they figured a bit in an earlier episode, uh, you know, on the the 1946 um, Black March on D.C., um, which was, again, intended uh, to promote civil rights, um, which was a response to the 1946 Morris Ford lynchings, which I'll go into more detail in now. A mob of about two dozen white men lynched two black couples, George and May Dorsey and Roger and Dorothy Malcolm. The mob tied the Malcolms and the Dorseys to trees and fired approximately 60 shots into their bodies at short range. Once again, no arrests were made, even though there was a living eyewitness, one Mr. Harrison, the employer of both Mr. Dorsey and Mr. Malcolm, who was driving home after having bailed out Mr. Mark Malcolm in jail for a stabbing charge. Um, so, you know, the theory is, is essentially that there was a $600 bail for Mr. Malcolm, and um, his employer went to go bail him out, and then was uh, essentially held up by a mob of men uh, with faces uncovered. And, um, you know, he wasn't able to identify any of them, Uh, you know. So no charges were filed. Uh, The FBI investigated, 
and eventually a grand jury was convened in federal district court. Because, again, ordinarily this would be a local case, but the local officers didn't file any charges, and so the FBI handled it as a civil rights violation. Um, now, in front of the grand jury, Harrison wasn't able to identify any, any of the men in the crowd, even though this is in the context of rural Georgia, and presumably most people would be known to one another. Another witness uh, testified that she'd seen what looked like a kind of a dry run of the lynching, where two men, two dozen men, sorry, were acting suspiciously at the side of the road, but of course she couldn't identify any of them either. Um, the FBI, I talked to a lot of people in the community, and one of them actually fled, like ran into a field rather than, than testify, um, and uh, claimed that they weren't going to step forward. No one else would either because they feared that they themselves would be lynched. So after three weeks of testimony, the federal grand jury concluded no charges would be forthcoming. Now, I mentioned this case uh, because it's its last mass lynching in U.S. history. Um, it's a very significant case in civil rights in the United States, um, in part because this model that failed here of the FBI investigating murders on the basis of civil rights violations would later be used successfully in other cases involving lynches, lynchings and white supremacist violence. Um, but this case is also extraordinary in that it has itself never been solved. Um, in fact, it remained open for decades. In 1998, the Georgia Historical Society erected a roadside marker to commemorate the lynching. And this is believed to be the first historical mark marking for lynching in America. In 2001, the state of Georgia reopened the Moore's Ford lynching case. And in 2006, the FBI also began to reinvestigate the case. Again, the FBI reclosed the case in 2015, and the state of Georgia reclosed its case in 2018. Now, this case came up uh, recently again in the news uh, a couple of years ago. In our system, grand jury proceedings are supposed to remain sealed, but they can be unsealed in exceptional circumstances. The original records from the original federal grand jury were actually located by a researcher, and uh, he petitioned to have them unsealed. Um, in 2017, Trump's then-Attorney General, William Barr, successfully opposed this unsealing of the Morris Ford lynching grand jury testimony in federal court. Uh, again, presumably everyone who perpetrated this probably deceased, right? But nonetheless, you know, this is great of great historical interest. Uh, it's an unsolved case. Uh, not unsealed, right? So to this very day, it remains unsealed and seems unlikely that we will ever know what actually happened in the last mass lynching in the United States. So, in this case, it's typical, right? It typifies the kind of impunity where there's a lack of consequences. You know, people can say, I wasn't in the crowd, um, and then witnesses won't come forward. Finally, scapegoating and deflection, diversion, shifting of blame. Consistently, when white mobs attack, They'll oftentimes blame their actions on the actual targets of their violence. 
concocting the most outrageous lies to justify the unjustifiable. For white mobs and their supporters, there are no lies too implausible for them to offer up and their efforts to blame the victims for their violence. This oftentimes will extend to official narratives. In 2001, the state of Oklahoma's Tulsa Race Massacre Commission finally offered up a report on the Tulsa Massacre that told some of the essential truths regarding the conduct of the mob in Tulsa and revealed that the grand jury inquiry into the attack that was originally conducted was an original fraud. Quote, The grand jury's most notable action is not the indictments that returned, but the whitewash it engaged in. Their report, which was published in its entirely in the Tulsa world under the heading Grand Jury Blames Negroes for Inciting Race Rioting, Whites Clearly Exonerated, told a laughable story of black culpability for the riot. The report is an amazing document that demonstrates how evidence can be selectively interpreted. It is, quite simply, a classic case of interpreters' extreme biases coloring their vision of events. Time after time, official accounts shift the responsibility for the violence of white mobs onto the victims themselves. In the Wilmington coup, for example, blame was shifted onto Alexander Manley, the owner of the Wilmington Daily Record, believed to be the only black-owned daily newspaper in America at the time. In Tulsa, local black business owners were charged for incitement. The very first charge was levied against J.B. Sanford, sorry, Stratford, the owner of what was at the time the largest black-owned hotel in America. Stratford filed the, fled to the state to the state of Illinois and managed to fight extradition and was finally cleared of all charges in 1996. So those are the five commonalities I've identified that serve to promote the impunity of white mobs in America. Now I'd like to briefly describe how these apply to the capital insurrection. First, the invisibility of the white mob, the failure to plan, the the way that help never seems to actually come to people in need of it. Uh, we saw this the amount of time it took for law enforcement to address the threat, the inattention to warning signs and red flags, the inattention to intelligence that was developed warning of an attack. Uh, for example, in the news media and the Norfolk field office of the FBI, I know that there are going to be all these let it happen on purpose theories uh, circulating, but I think it's actually simpler. Despite how many times they happen, law enforcement is designed to be selective. Certain communities are intended to be subjected to panopticonic surveillance, others to be left alone. Trump called on the Proud Boys to stand by in a presidential debate, the most public format imaginable, and yet this apparently didn't attract any attention from the FBI. He called for a wild protest and a wild protest event website, more than one actually, appeared on the internet in December of 2020, complete with a map of the venue, and included, in fact, labels for the Capitol and the SCOTUS, even though those weren't in the official event permits. And still, somehow, this was all very much invisible to security. It, it attracted no attention from the FBI, um, and the warnings that were issued didn't appear to, to move up the chain of command uh, is one, you know, might have hoped that they would have. Furthermore, if you look at the Capitol Police, there's a page on the internet where you can go and you can look what the Capitol Police do. And day in, day out, they're looking at, they're 
arresting homeless people for camping on Capitol grounds. They're arresting uh, people for minor drug offenses. They're arresting people for DUIs, you know, all which I suppose are important. But on the day when the most, you know, important security threat that they face at the Capitol in many years occurs, they are unready. So they continually uh, are engaged much more in, um, you know, examining the conduct of people who are, you know, subject to surveillance rather than actually paying any attention at all to a, a grave security threat. More concerned about whether or not there are tents on Capitol grounds than they are apparently uh, to the threat of far-right white mobs. Moreover, when security officials uh, have actually called for an investigation of far-right political violence, Republicans have moved swiftly to shut it down. In 2009, Daryl Johnson authored a report for the Department of Homeland Security that suggested that far-right groups were moving to recruit law enforcement and veterans. The response from congressional Republicans was swift. They lied, claiming that the report was an attack on veterans, and they demanded that the Department of Homeland Security retract the report, which it did. What if, instead, the DHS and the FBI had actually reinvigorated defense against far-right terror, as they did briefly in the 1990s in the wake of the Murrah Building bombing? We have, at this point, been fighting a 35-year-long war against domestic extremist and racial terror, and we shouldn't accept this level of unpreparedness from security officials. Christopher Miller and General Piat claimed that the six-hour delay in getting the National Guard forces to the Capitol was an amazing accomplishment because they claimed they were starting from a cold start. But they shouldn't have been starting from a cold start in the first instance. Law enforcement needs to understand that right-wing mobs are just as much of a threat, perhaps more so, than left-wing demonstrators or BLM demonstrators. Washington, D.C. is the most heavily policed city in the world, with more law enforcement defense agencies than any city in the country. They never would have been this unprepared for a left-wing demonstration or a Black Lives Matter demonstration, even one that they thought would be peaceful, much less for one that had a proven potential for violence. Charlottesville. All these other events have happened uh, during the Trump administration that should have let them know that there are these right-wing gangs, there are these paramilitary organizations, and that, you know, they knew <laughs> they were going to come out on the 6th and, you know, apparently were unaware uh, of the danger. Security officials will deny it to their last breath, but it's patently absurd. The main obstacle to getting resources to the Capitol wasn't a failure of intelligence or training, but rather the inability of law enforcement to see a white mob as a threat. Two, the complicity or the participation of law enforcement in the military. Six Capitol Police were suspended and 29 others were subject to investigations by the Capitol Police Office of Professional Responsibility for their actions on the day of the insurrection. In addition, other departments, more than 50 law enforcement officers, active duty, and former military personnel were arrested for their alleged participation in the Capitol insurrection. Capitol Police on the day moved barricades away to permit the Trumpist mob into the Capitol. At only one point did they actually fire a weapon. This in a country where black people can be killed by police for selling loose cigarettes, for appearing to reach toward their waist, for jaywalking, for holding a cell phone, 
for being a 12-year-old boy playing with a toy handgun. This mob chanted that they wanted to hang the Vice President of the United States in the process of storming the building where he was, and yet officers only shot one of them. So there were officers from other departments in the crowd that fought with police, and the police who were there refused to use deadly force, except when one insurrectionist appeared to be breaking through the final barrier between the mob and members of Congress. The Office of Personal Responsibility has still not announced the results of these OPR investigations. And also, um, they've actually had to, you know, <laughs> instigate new ones, right? I mean, again, we just found out this week that um, their training organization, this Northern Red, uh, uses crypto-fascist imagery on their promotional material. And in March, there was another OPR investigation opened, um, an officer suspended because he was apparently reading the protocols of the elders of Zion at his duty station. So you have officers actually bringing the most vile anti-Semitic tract to work and reading it in their duty station and expecting that that's okay, uh, just a couple of months after the Capitol insurrection. So, yeah, while, you know, conduct of, of the Capitol Police itself, there, there are certainly no allegations that I've seen anyway uh, that says anything about um, the D.C. Metropolitan Police. So they did. They came. They did their job, but dozens of Capitol Police acted in a way that um, you know. Some people say it's a training problem. Could be a broader problem of of sympathy, even um, you know, putting on MAGA hats, right, and uh, you know, uh, appearing in selfies with a mob that is actually threatening to kill Speaker Pelosi and to hang Mike Pence. So. This isn't, in, this isn't the first time it's happened, right? So you had some officers who accounted, you know, acquit themselves very well, but then you have others who, you know, um, appeared to be acting in ways that were inconsistent with their security function. Three, the role of paramilitary organizations. Now, we already discussed this in the episode on the, Pro on the Proud Boys. I expect I will be uh, talking about this with regard to the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and other militias that were implicated in the Capitol insurrection. But the threat of far-right paramilitary organizations has long been a feature of our politics, as we've seen. And they've particularly been a threat since about the mid-1990s. So given the leading role that the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and other paramilitary-style groups had in the Capitol insurrection, hopefully law enforcement will finally start to pay more attention to this source of political violence in America. Just internationally and throughout American history, anytime you have paramilitary organizations that are engaging in political violence, it's not a great thing for your political stability. And so, you know, Finally, hopefully, uh, the FBI will actually begin to address this. And hopefully, the gang members who were there directing the violence and modeling the violent behavior that they wanted to see from other people in the mob will be treated accordingly. Um, again, of course, the other allegations, um, but these are, there's, there's some very strong evidence to show that you know they were engaged in a conspiracy, and that is what the government has alleged. So... We'll see if court, if uh, courts in D.C. are actually going to deal uh, with these um, 
allegations appropriate. Four, plausible deniability and lack of consequences. Now, this one, I think, at least would appear to be some good news. Uh, during the nadir of race relations in America, white mobs were protected by anonymity, right? They could credibly say, well, we don't know who was in the mob. But today, everyone carries a very good camera with them wherever they go. And many members of the mob appear to have provided their own digital evidence. It's hard to claim that you didn't take a part in an attack when there's multiple bits of video footage that documents your presence and everything you did. And oftentimes, you were the one who was actually taking the video. As we saw in the Moore's Ford lynching, eyewitnesses can be intimidated into silence. But cameras bring with them a certain degree of certitude. Even though it's true that law enforcement failed to prepare for the possibility of arrests, they, and they also permitted insurrectionists to go free on January 6th itself, the FBI has been pursuing suspects that escaped detention rather vigorously. And the arrests don't seem to be slowing down. Um, initial media reports you know, indicate, well, you know, maybe it'll be 200, 300, 400, 500. Um, if you look at what the digital evidence indicates, uh, it's more likely to be closer to 800. So, um, you know, the, Director Ray has not really said anything too terribly specific about it, but just among the people who brought phones with active geolocation services turned on inside the Capitol, they've had to sort them out from other people. Um, but it appears that, you know, the, most of those people will be found and identified. It's just a matter of time. Uh, gathering digital evidence um, and then corroborating the digital evidence with eyewitnesses and geolocation before they actually make arrests. So it's going to be interesting to see if anyone else is charged. Uh, for example, the organizers of the rally itself, what did they know and when did they know it? Did they know that there was going to be an attempt to storm the Capitol beginning with the rally at the Ellipse? Uh, what about the organizations that put up these wild protest websites? One has to assume that the DOJ is looking into the possibility that there was some involvement between the insurrectionists and the various people in the orbit of Donald Trump. I'm not going to name names, but I think if you read the press reports, you have some idea about who we're talking about. Uh, we've already had one Trump appointee, Mr. Klein, charged in the insurrection, and he is on personal recognizance right now. Um, so, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see if there's, you know, he has any evidence to offer, uh, against any of his co-conspirators. Um, also, by the way, there has been a lot of talk about how many of these folks have been offered, uh, personal recognizance. And, um, this is a further example of bias uh, because 10%, yeah, that's, that's relatively low, right? Could be it's because so many of these folks are charged with misdemeanors. That could be one reason. Um, it's lower than the overall average in the federal system, but also because of the CARES Act. Uh, much of this has to do with coronavirus, and because um, they're of the danger of coronavirus in the federal system, they've been very aware of the danger to pretrial people and also the danger that they're bringing COVID in with them. So they've been uh, federal judges have been granting uh, bail, right? They're, they've been excusing people from pretrial detention and using GPS monitoring and other ways of trying to make sure that they make their court dates rather than putting them inside the federal system. Uh, but there again, you know, it just so happens um, 
it's a happy coincidence, I suppose, uh, for the accused. But, you know, 90% of them were allowed to be uh, given to be at liberty uh, or some kind of liberty before um, their, their trials. And that, one might argue, given the seriousness of the, of the offenses, given the fact that this actually endangered the transition of power, the orderly transition, the peaceful transition from one administration to another, seems to be on the lighter side. On the other hand, again, as opposed to the past, we are at least seeing charges. So um, it's better than it was 70 years ago. All right, got the fifth one, scapegoating. Again, this is something of a, of a bright spot here. Um, now, the evidence shows that capital insurgents planned to blame the violence from the very start on BLM and Antifa. There's stuff on the internet in the charging documents where they're saying BLM and Antifa are going to be there. We have to go and, you know, it's going to be wild. And part of what's interesting is I think some of those folks uh, from the responses, from what I've read, actually took that literally, right? They, they, some of them were under the mistaken belief that BLM and Antifa were going to be there. And there's a question of why, why, right? Why would they be there? Um, they apparently, you know, uh, left-wing protesters didn't suspect that this was going to happen, right? Uh, moreover, you know, if you were to ask, let's say, the average member of Antifa, if they're elated about the prospect of a Joe Biden administration, contrary to what many of the propagandists, uh, you know, would say, no, right? Joe Biden, there's no law of loss between him and the radical left in America. The radical left in America actually, uh, you know, they're, they're to the left of Bernie Sanders, right? You know, Kropotkin, that, that's not, they're not, uh, you know, happy to have a, uh, you know, rather moderate liberal from Delaware, the state that has the headquarters of more corporations than any other state in America, uh, serve as the president of the United States. And they weren't going to go, you know, protest the election that, that Biden won, right? So on the one hand, you know, they weren't going to protest an election that Trump lost. Uh, they're probably sitting at home saying, yay, Trump lost, don't like Biden particularly, but they weren't going to D.C. Um, and so, you know, they had this pretext cooked up. Problem for them, BLM and Tifa didn't show up, you know, and they didn't apparently think about it, that in order to make this claim, it has to be plausible. You have to find some people who are actually going to show up to fight. And, you know, they just showed up and fought with the cops. So uh, it's a rather long tradition. White mobs have been permitted time and time again to blame their own violence on victims, particularly black victims, right? There are certain places in this country where you can just say BLM and people will be willing to justify any measure of violence whatsoever. So... Fortunate news is that these claims just kind of lack face validity. There has simply been too many arrests of too many people with documented connections to the world of right-wing and far-right-wing politics to be able to make this claim even remotely credible. And some of the participants in the insurrection itself have gotten mad. They've denied these claims, right? So sort of mainstream or elected members of the far-right-wing of the Republican Party have come out and said, well, it was BLM and Antifa, and some of the defendants on social media posted, well, no, no, it was us. We're proud of it, right? We're patriots. We, we take full credit. Um, also, right-wing media have tried to pin responsibility for the entire event 
on John Sullivan of, of Utah, an activist with a history of self-promotion uh, who'd been asked not to attend BLM events in his home state by actual BLM activists because they saw him as a very poor reflection on the movement. What this guy does is he goes to move these various events, he takes video footage, and he sells it to the highest bidder. And he sold his video footage from the Capitol insurrection um, for $90,000, which was later seized by the FBI. But, uh, you know, that was his motivation, was to go egg people on, try to get the best video footage he could. But he certainly wasn't organizing the thing. Um, allegedly, you know, uh, the material uh, tends to point toward the members of the violent extremist gangs who left the ellipse before Trump even began speaking and made their way and started attacking police immediately before the speech was even done and before the rest of the crowd formed itself into a mob and stormed the Capitol. They modeled the behavior that they wanted the, the mob to engage in, and that's exactly what happened. Um, it'd be great if, you know, the, the FBI could make this case uh, more strongly to the public uh, to, you know, show them what really happened. Um, but, you know, at the moment, there are, you know, sort of competing narratives. But nonetheless, I, I expect the, the narrative that Antifa and BLM somehow caused it is going to be, you know, uh, not well received ultimately because where were they? They would have been arrested. There would be video footage. And as they found, they found one guy who is kind of suspect because uh, his motive was simply monetary. And he, in fact, had been disavowed by BLM activists in his home state. All right. So that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to catch up on more developments in the various investigations and also the Congressional Committee hearings on the Capitol insurrection. Until then, please rate and subscribe and recommend the podcast to any friends who might be interested. Until then, I'm Scott Coon. Have a great week.